Hey, it's good to be here. I am back full-time at Bethel Seminary. Four months, I'm done. I am so happy. But, thank you very much. Maybe we should wait four months and see. But <laughs> it's really great to be back at Woodland Hills because we love this church. I feel like we met Jesus in an amazing way here. And also, we just have great friends here like Paul and Kelly. And so it's really an honor to be here with all of you and also to be here teaching with Paul. So um, I've only been back here maybe six months, and I already know that the Growing in the Spirit campaign is all about building, bridging, and becoming. Woo. And Greg's been talking for the last few months about discipleship of the mind, which is the becoming be. And today, Paul and I are launching a series on bridging, which is really about reconciliation between people, between churches, and marriages, between different denominations, really tearing down the walls between different groups of people. And we've been talking about that off and on for a long time. I've even listened to some of the tapes when I wasn't here, and this is an ongoing theme. And so to launch this new series today, Paul and I are talking about why reconcile? Why is this the core of the core of the core of what we're about? Where does that come from in the Bible, and what can we do about it? So today we're going to kind of take a broad brush stroke at that, and then in the next few weeks we're going to be talking about reconciliation between races, between churches and between different socioeconomic levels. So that's the plan to say, how can we be reconcilers in the work of Christ? But let's pray. Father, we're gathered here in your name and to hear from you. And so I just ask that you would speak to us and through us and that you would meet each one of us in our place of need and meet each one of us in our place of gifting, Father. Some of us really need healing. And some of us need to know what we can get up and do. And since we're all in different places, we trust that you will meet us just where we are. And I pray that we would be open to hear from your spirit and receiving from you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, why reconcile? Well, I've got to start with either the good news or the bad news. So which do you want it to be? The bad news. Oh, so one person wants that. You see, if we do the good news, now we have to end with bad news. And how depressing would that be? So let's start with the bad news, and it is bad. We're going to talk about some areas of brokenness within humanity and within the body of Christ. Talking about marriages first, the divorce rate among Baptists is the highest of any Christian denomination. Baptists are more likely to get a divorce than atheists or agnostics. 27% of those describing themselves as born-again Christians have been divorced and only 24% for the rest of the population. Atheists and agnostics actually have among the lowest divorce rates. So we have some brokenness within marriages, but we also have brokenness racially. I think most of us here at Woodland Hills are aware of this, but it's been said that 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour of the week. And there's been some research done on that. It was put out in a book a couple years ago called Divided by Faith. And it is indeed the case that... 11 o'clock is a segregated hour. And in fact, the research shows that not only are churches not working to resolve the racial segregation issues and the prejudice issues, they're actually making it worse in some cases. What about denominations and different churches? Why are there so many of those? Do you know that just within Roman Catholicism, there are 223 different denominations? In non-Roman Catholic church, there's 504 different denominations. The Orthodox Church has 580 separate denominations, and the Anglican Church has 240. Does anyone have a guess how many different Protestant denominations there are? 
Let's hear it. Come on. Anyone got a guess? He says 2,800. Higher. 3,000. Higher. 5,200. It needs to be higher. You know, Paul, you're pretty smart. I heard you had a PhD. What do you think? A little pressure. 26 or more. Just so... You know, you think the or more gets you somewhere, doesn't it? I do. It? I'm it covering not. my bases. It does not. He's not even paying attention. 8,196 denominations. And we almost need to laugh about it or we'll just have to cry because there is one church of Jesus Christ and we've all been given the same mission and somehow we've managed to divide ourselves into 10,000 different denominations worldwide and there's probably even more than that. Another area of brokenness within the church is in gender. When I did a little bit of research, I found one denomination that had 16% of its ministers were female. Most denominations among evangelical Protestants have 0% which means that women who are gifted in leadership and called of God to teach and preach are not having an opportunity to answer the call that God has put on their lives. It's more brokenness. And of course, in the midst of our brokenness with one another that manifests itself in these different ways, we all experience at one time or another a very real and painful brokenness with God. Even if we decided at some point to reconcile with God through Jesus Christ, there are days when we still wake up and feel that he's gone. He's not hearing. Our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And we feel broken and alone. This is the bad news. And the question is, how did we get to this place of brokenness? Why did we end up in such a sad state of affairs? And because that's a very difficult question, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Paul Eddy to answer it. <laughs> yeah. I'll go over here and be, be quiet. subtle transition. What's that? Subtle? Subtle transition. Human brokenness. I think we all know that uh, behind every therapy session, behind every political movement, behind every court case, behind every drug deal, every pornography addiction, every attempt of the next one of us to pursue the American dream. Somewhere lurking in the depth of all those things is a human being simply trying to either medicate or fix our human brokenness. We've, we've got brokenness. Sandra gave you the statistics. Brokenness with God, brokenness with each other, even fundamentally brokenness with ourselves. And so if that's true, then Undoubtedly, the single most important question a human being can ever ask and therefore answer would be, how do we ever get whole again? How do we get fixed or find someone who can fix us? And if that's ever going to happen, as Greg has emphasized through his discipleship series, what he calls the Vim Principle, borrowed from Dallas Willard, which all of you have memorized now. You can say it in your sleep, I hope. V stands for Vision. vision. We need a vision. If we're ever going to be transformed, we need a vision that we see out ahead of us of what it is we could be that God is calling us to. Secondly, we need an eye, intention. We have to have decided that, yes, we will seize that vision through God's grace and power. But finally, we need an M, a means, a means by which to move from where we're at to that vision. What's that intention has set us along that path. What I'd like to cast this morning along with Sandra is a vision. A vision that would speak to that brokenness, that would perhaps explain it 
and that might give us a vision to move towards. And to do that, let's, let's grasp God's vision. What we need is a vision of unbroken humanity. What would I look like if I wasn't broken? What would you look like if you weren't broken? And the only one who can tell us that, because we, frankly, short of Jesus Christ, we've never seen an unbroken human being on this planet for more than the apparently 20 minutes or so that Adam and Eve managed to not eat the fruit. Hasn't been a lot of good examples. Let's go back to the beginning. Back to the Bible, beginning of the Bible, back to the beginning of time, back to the garden. It's where Greg started us off on the discipleship series last year with his love and the knowledge of good and evil series. It's where we want to pick up today. Because in the beginning, God, first four words of the first chapter of the first verse of Genesis, in the beginning, God, not just any God, a lot of gods out there, a lot of gods that people talk about, a lot of gods that religions offer, a lot of gods we have in our own head that don't always match up to the true God. We want to talk about the God that was in the beginning, the triune God of all-consuming, passionate love. There's a God. A God who doesn't just happen to love, but who is love. A Father who passionately loves the Son, who passionately loves the Spirit, who passionately loves the Father, and it's just a turbine of unending eternal love, a juggernaut of consuming passion moving through cosmic history. That's our God. And this God was in the beginning. And in the beginning, because this God was so full of passionate love that just spilled over out of himself, he created. He had to create. There was too much love inside to hold it in. When he created, it wasn't because he was lonely and needed some creatures to love him. He had perfect love. It was because, much like a, a man and a woman, when they get together in a healthy marriage, just naturally produce more life. That's our God. And so he created. And Genesis texts us through, chapter 1, the various stages of this creation. And it comes to that sixth day, about halfway through the day. And it says that God looked upon his creation and he said, it's, it's good. It's good. It doesn't say very good. He saves that for the end of that sixth day. Because... There's still something missing. As any artist knows, until one takes a piece of one's heart and puts it into the painting, something's missing. And, and God looks upon this creation, apparently, and he says, I'm missing. And so he said, let us create humankind in our image, in our likeness. Let a piece of me be the capstone to this creation, the exclamation point that puts the finale on this whole creative act. And it says, in the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Genesis chapter 2 picks up a little more detail in this last creative act. It says that he created Adam. Adam. Not just the proper name of the first man, but Adam is the Hebrew name for human being. He creates the first human being. And you can imagine him forming this man in whatever Amazing way God did that. Two eyes by which to appreciate the beauty of his creation. Two feet with which to walk with God and dance with him in the eternal love relationship. Two hands with which to worship and to care for his creation. And so he creates Adam, but he looks into his soul and something is still missing. It's a beautiful creation, but it doesn't look like the triune God. Not yet, because there's a single solitary self there. And our God is a three-person God in passionate, consuming love. And so it says, this interesting narrative that follows, it says that God made the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and brought them to the man. Kind of the image you get is Adam is standing there and God lines up every creature he can conceive of to make. 
and kind of says to Adam, so take your pick. It's not good for you to be alone, the text says. Well, according to the text, apparently nothing particularly tripped Adam's trigger as he was looking at the various beasts of the field. And the nice creatures, mind you, but nothing you'd like to take home to mom. And so God says, no problem. The text we pick up here. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he created into woman, woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, ah, at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now, that's sort of a nice, polite English translation. In the original Hebrew, it would be more like, uh, ooh la la. Okay? He likes what he sees this time around. God did it upright. Ooh and as la he la. Takes, what? Did you say ooh la la? Well, that's a loose translation. Okay, right? very loose. I just wanted to be clear what yeah, we were saying. Color commentary by saying. Notice the imagery, though. This is amazing. This is the triune God pouring himself into his creation. A single solitary self doesn't do it. But if you take that, that being and separate out a piece of that and create the exact mirror image and bring them back into relationship, into that one flesh relationship, therefore the man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The one become two only to become one again. Now we're getting close to the triune God who's always three in one. And isn't it the case that whenever you get the two becoming one flesh, if all things go well, there's three pretty quickly in the or equation. Four or, or five four or five or six or, six or, six or seven. Or God does it up well in his creation. He brings forth a creature whose mere image becomes love and then the two of them love on into the garden's potential eternity. But we know that that potential in the garden gets cut short. In fact, we have one verse left in chapter 2 before we turn to chapter 3 and we have a slithering serpent. And six verses later, we have the most tragic single instance in human history. So what does God leave us with? That What's the last snapshot of this first moment? This moment of human paradise. This moment when God pours himself into his creation. What's the last sentence we read before the second moment of tragic brokenness? It's simply these words. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Odd thing, perhaps, for God to leave is our final thought about what the garden was like before things go bad. They were naked and not ashamed. But I think God chose his words well here. Um, sometimes when I teach this uh, on, in my class at Bethel, I do a thought experiment at this point. Uh, it's a thought experiment that, in which people in the audience's clothes disappear for a moment, which is highly inappropriate to do in church, and so I decided not to do that. Come on. Sanderson should walk off the stage if I didn't, so Come this on. is her issue, all right? <laughs> but imagine, if you will, for Sandra, that in the next solar system, a supernova has just exploded, a star system, and it's a very odd X-ray that is showered now upon our planet. It only has one effect, in fact. All it does is it vaporizes every fabric on the planet. It's going to happen in five seconds. Four, three, two. Turn the cameras off. Yeah, quick. <laughs> Let's enter into Adam and Eve's experience with them. 
I don't know how you would feel. I know I'm up on stage, so maybe it's a little more intense how I would feel if this were to happen. But immediately, right, we cover, we hide. To be vulnerable, to be entirely open to God and the world is not a comfortable place to be in our culture, in our world, ever since chapter 3 of Genesis. But for some reason, when Adam and Eve stood naked before God and each other, it says they were not ashamed. Question, what kind of creature could live in this existence? Naked but not ashamed. I'll suggest to you, only one kind of creature. A creature who is so fashioned in the likeness of God, so much a lover, agape love, so other-oriented, so self-sacrificially given to God and each other that their own state of affairs was not even a register on the blip of the radar of self. There was no self-consciousness to even be aware of. This is love. The absence of self-centeredness, the utter radical giving to God and others in unbroken, loving adoration. And that lasts a very short period of time because we know Chapter 3 quickly breaks upon us. And the serpent comes, and I'm not going to go into the full detail of the fall there. Greg walked us through that over several weeks when he talked about uh, the love and the knowledge of good and evil and the tree and, and all of that. Just to remember two things, that that fall was precipitated by two fundamental lies that each of us believe every time we enter into sin or a broken relationship. A lie about God and a lie about ourselves. The lie about God has something to do with he is not the God of love. He's not the one that we can trust. He certainly doesn't have my well-being at the height of his consciousness. So I've, I've, I've got to fend for myself. That was the lie that the enemy handed to Adam and Eve. He doesn't really care about you. He's trying to keep you down. And the second lie was, it's never good enough to be just image of God. Until I am God, something is going to be unfulfilled in my life. The second great lie. In every sin, we reproduce those things. We don't trust God about what is best for us, and we decide that we should be at the center of the universe in some way, shape, or form. What I want to touch on is the three central consequences of what happens. It really defines our brokenness. It helps uh, shed light into our human situation here. The very first verse we read, after that fruit is seized, which, remember, always simply represented them trying to become God. We read these words. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. First thing we hear about isn't that, that God and them were affected. That's the second thing we'll touch on. The first words after the fall is something about a human transformation of the psyche. They've moved, apparently, from utter awareness and consciousness of God and each other where themselves don't even register as something to be concerned about. They're so loved, they don't protect, to now their eyes being opened and they're seeing their nakedness. It's almost as if, in an instant, a black hole of unfulfilled neediness just opens up in their soul. And everything gets sucked in now to the vortex of this black hole. Their own consciousness isn't even on God and each other. Now it's about me, my nakedness, my shame. This, I'll submit, is the fundamental quality of our brokenness. Radical self-orientation. We've moved from love to self as the fundamental datum of our existence. 
And we try to fill that black hole. We suck life from everything that we can possibly imagine, from people and from ideologies and from theories and from religions, never turning back, at least until we do turn back, to the one God who can fulfill that infinite need. The next thing we hear describes the second consequence. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the time of the evening breeze. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? I remember growing up in a number of churches I was in different times, hearing that God cannot look upon sin. I don't know. What I see here is a God who can't only not look upon sin. He pursues the sinner. He doesn't flee from the garden because Adam and Eve have broken covenant with him. He radically is moving through brush and tree and branch, seeking out the broken human being. It's us who turn and run from God. The second consequence, the one source of life that can give us back our true identity, we tend to turn from, to run, to hide from. That nakedness, that shame, causes us to flee the one passionate, pursuing God who can never make us whole again. Second part of the human response is interesting. Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because you were naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the fruit of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who... Hey, <laughs> that woman. You, you can be Eve for the I'll moment. I'll be Eve, Be okay. Eve for the moment. You have designer fig leaves and all, but... Mm -hmm. It's green. The woman who you gave me, she took and gave me fruit to eat. The first documented case of blame shifting in human history. And Adam's good at it. I mean, the only two people he can point at, really, God and, and the woman. It's their fault. You gave me her, she gave me the fruit. It's your problems. Well, at least the woman was a little bit more theologically astute, I think. Okay, in her I'll grant you that. Then God said to the woman, what's this you've done? <clears throat> and she said... The serpent tricked me and I ate. The devil made me do it. The devil did make her do it. A lot of blame shifting going on here. And although Eve may be more theologically accurate, notice that the response of both of them is, this is not about me. It's about God, it's about the other person, it's about the devil. But rarely do we look inside for the source of our brokenness. We tend to frame the world as the source of our brokenness. And if only God or our partner or our friends or our employer or our government or Satan wasn't doing something, I would be just fine. Still believing that that center has not been fundamentally damaged. The last piece I want to touch on in this chapter is when God turns to the woman. We see another piece of the brokenness here. <clears throat> to the woman, he said, Your pains in childbearing will be greatly increased. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. I want to touch a lot on that first part of the verse, uh, kind of an interesting uh, digression. Apparently, God says, let there be pain in childbirth now in ways there wasn't before. Uh, modern medicine says, let there be epidural blocks, and we solved that problem. Amen. So we've got to that. It's the second part I want to look at. You shall desire your husband, but he shall rule over you. Men, is this not the greatest verse in the Bible? No. Huh? 
God gave us this, right? No. No. Tell us Lady. what it really means. Okay, ladies, I'm going to betray my subspecies. And if, you're, uh, if your male does believe this is a grand verse for him, sit them down and do a little Bible study with him, a little exegesis. Point out two things. One, this is a curse text. This is not what God wants to be the case. This is God weeping, I imagine, as he tragically describes what will be the case, unfortunately. Uh, in fact, God spends now Genesis 4 to Revelation 22 trying to turn this whole tragic garden scene around. This is not what God wants. This is simply what is going to probably happen now with, with species. Secondly, what's that desire thing? Well, if you flip open to the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 7, you see the author uses this word desire, the, the Hebrew word there, in the same way. And there it clearly means, the way this author uses the term, is desire to have control over. This is a power term. So what this phrase is saying is, dear woman, you are going to desire to control your husband, but he is going to dominate you. And I'll just flash back to that last snapshot in chapter 2. Two souls so passionately one-fleshed that they're not even aware of each other. They're so, so giving into each other's lives and so abundantly overflowing with God's love that there's no question about who's in charge, who's in power. It's, it's, it's so Christ-like servanthood to each other that question doesn't arise. But now, in a world where black holes of self suck all of my energy into me, and you into you, now everything becomes about power struggle. Who's on top? Who's in charge? How can I manipulate? And this becomes now the tragic human scene for the rest of human history. But even here, as we close out this second moment, beautiful moment of God's idea of humanity, a tragic moment of brokenness between God, between myself, between others, even here we, we have glimmers of a third moment where God is still passionately pursuing the broken human beings through the garden, saying, I will not give up on you. And now it's time for the good news. Amen. Hallelujah. This is the good news. And the good news is that God's intentions for humanity and his love for humanity were revealed in the person of Jesus Christ a couple thousand years ago. And this radical person named Jesus, who created waves unlike any other human being, did a couple of things to further this task of reconciliation, to try to fix the brokenness that happened in the garden. In moment one, all looked great. The one became two, became one. Ooh la la, naked yeah. and not ashamed. In moment two, all was lost and seemed hopeless. And in moment three, the person of Jesus showed up in the manger with something new for humanity. In his 33 years here on earth, he lived a life of reconciliation that sometimes we don't recognize because in our cultural context, some of the things that Jesus did and said were rather ordinary. But if we go back into first century Palestine, we see him doing and saying things that were certainly not ordinary, not expected, and really not appropriate for the time and place in which he lived. One of these relates to table fellowship. This would be the uh, pattern that they had of how they ate together, who they ate with, where they sat, how the meals were done. Lots and lots and lots of rules and symbolism. I mean, if Miss Manners tried to go back into this context, she's like Bart Simpson. This is not a place that you want to mess up. And then it wasn't just about which fork do you use. I'm still confused about that. But at this time, it's about everything. 
Because all of the rules around Judaism and how you lived your life, it wasn't just about which fork you use, it, it penetrated every part of life. So when you sat down for a meal, you were actually sending messages that all of us here would be totally unaware of. You were endorsing the people that you're eating with. You're trying to follow all the strict rules and do things just right. And Jesus came into this context and he didn't do things just right according to the society he was part of. Jesus ate with the outcasts of society that no good Jew would ever sit down with. He ate with the poor, the lame, the blind, flagrant sinners, slaves, broken people, females, impure people. He sat down and said, I endorse you, I bless you. I tear down the walls of division between us. And the radical message he sat just by sitting down around the dinner table was there should be no barriers between people. There should be no barriers. It wasn't just even at mealtime for Jesus. He actually had this band of people who followed him all around. And in this band of people were more inappropriate people. Can you imagine? 24-7. Jesus is followed around by a tax collector. This is someone who was totally politically corrupt, morally bankrupt. Not someone that you would want to hang out with. We don't like to tax people today for different reasons. But at that time they were universally hated going and collecting double the tax so that they could have a part of it. Remember Zacchaeus? These were not people that anyone wanted to be around and that any of them would have as their disciple or sit down and eat with them. He had women, actually women as his disciples who followed him around to learn from him. Again, there's no rabbi, no Jewish teacher who's going to have women as his students. Samaritans, the Jews had a very interesting view of Samaritans. They would have called them half-breed heretic dogs. They had intermingled with the other people groups, so they weren't pure Jews. And you just didn't hang out from them. The Jews walked way out of their way to not go through Samaria, but not Jesus. Jesus went to Samaria. Jesus hung out with prostitutes, women of ill repute. All day, every day, at meals, during his teaching, at times in between, Jesus was surrounded by people that were not appropriate to even look in the eye, much less count as your circle of friends. And he sent the message through this behavior to say, this is a new day when the barriers are torn down, when reconciliation is going to come out through the kingdom of God. So he modeled horizontally by the way he lived for those 33 years, this kind of reconciliation with those around him. But he also modeled for us, and we see this all through the Gospels, this radical, reconciled love relationship with his heavenly Father. And you find this in all of the times when Jesus separates himself from his friends and followers and goes alone to be with God, goes to the garden, goes and fasts and prays. He takes his disciples to worship at the Mount of Olives. He says, I only do what the Father tells me to do, a radical life of obedience. So he showed us on two levels, horizontally and vertically, what it means to live as a reconciled person. And this was an overwhelming radical message. His relationship with his heavenly father was even radical. For one thing, he was claiming that this was his heavenly father and that was his son. But maybe for us today, the more profound thing was just to know that Jesus called his heavenly father Abba, Daddy. 
His relationship was a real relationship, a deep relationship, an intimate relationship. Daddy. We go before our Heavenly Father as Daddy because we're reconciled and we're naked and not ashamed. And Jesus lived this kind of life. But not only did he live for reconciliation, we all here at Woodland Hills know that he died for reconciliation. It gets more radical. This reconciliation was for all of us here, all people through history, to learn to be reconciled with one another horizontally and reconciled with God. It's both. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. Step one, we're reconciled to himself through Christ. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And now we're to go and be reconcilers. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us here. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. This could not be any clearer. Two or three times in this verse, the work of Jesus Christ was to reconcile us to God so that we could be his ambassadors and go and reconcile people to one another and to God. That's the task we've been given. In Galatians 3, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Here we find race, socioeconomic, gender lines all torn down by the work of Christ. So humanity's broken relationship with God. Finally, we can be returned to the state of reconciliation. We can be returned to the state where we can walk with God naked and unashamed, be fully known, fully loved, live other-oriented lives, and we can learn to reach out then to those around us because we're not living in a black hole of need. Christ made a way to heal all that had been broken in the garden. That's what he lived and that's what he died. But some of you might feel the tension here in moment three, right? Because we started out with the bad news. Look at all the brokenness today, 21st century that we live in. And then Paul says, well, no, but we had really great stuff in the garden, and then we got broken. And then I came and said, look, here's the good news. Jesus made it all okay, right? There's a little tension there, because the bad news is still sitting there, and we have to do something with it. Why is there still bad news? If Jesus came to live and die for reconciliation, what are we doing here a couple thousand years later? Why is the divorce rate in the church higher? Why are we segregated? Why is there racism? Why are half of the population not enabled in most churches to use their gifts? What's going on? Well, this brings us to moment four. Anyone here ever heard of the kingdom of God? You know, in our mission statement here, we talk about advancing the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. Well, what is the kingdom of God? Do you know that Jesus talked more about the kingdom of God than any other topic in his messages? It shows up more often than anything else, the kingdom of God. So what is it? Well, ever since the 17th century in particular, there have just been hordes of scholars trying to figure out, what is this kingdom of God? What did Jesus mean? 
It seems like an important question, right? Since he talked about it more than anything else. And on the one hand, we have what we might call the liberal scholars. And they say, well, Jesus was talking about bringing an earthly kingdom. They were going to overthrow Roman rule. They were going to free all the oppressed people. And this earthly kingdom was going to come. Too bad he was wrong. And then the other people, the evangelicals over here say, no, 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 it was a future kingdom. Jesus is saying at some unknown point in the future, he's going to return and establish the kingdom, and then all will be made right. And there's books and books and books, portraits of Jesus that you can read. And some argue this way, and some argue that. And the good news is that it's both. The good news is that it's both. We're living in an already, but not yet kingdom. Jesus talks about us inheriting a kingdom. In John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. So that's a future kingdom. But then we find in Mark 1, the kingdom of Christ has come near. Hmm. The gospel writers and Paul and us today all live in this tension with the already and not yet. And I've been thinking about this a lot and I think I've got it all cracked and nailed down. Here's what I think is going on. I've spent all my years in the church, and I think what's going on is that we basically, myself included, decide to follow Jesus, and then we just sit around and wait for the kingdom to come, right? I kind of skipped the 2 Corinthians 5 passage where I'm actually supposed to be advancing the kingdom. And I think, okay, I made a decision to follow Jesus, and now I get to sit around and wait. You know, books have been written predicting it's going to be this year or that year. 1983, Jesus was supposed to come back. He didn't appear. So we just need to wait for the right date to show up and then everything will be made right. Then the divorce rate will go down and then racism will no longer exist. It kind of makes you a little bit complacent when you just think about the not yet kingdom and you put all your hopes in the fact that Jesus will come and solve all of this. We focus on this future coming of Christ and forget that we've been called to be ambassadors of reconciliation today. Many, many, many theologians and scholars will argue that Jesus will not usher in his kingdom fully until his body, the church, today begins to usher it in in our lives of reconciliation. Until we begin to act like ambassadors of the kingdom, the kingdom will not fully arrive. Is it possible that Jesus is waiting for us to actually be the body of Christ? Is it possible that over 10,000 denominations should be uniting to show the world what it means for the kingdom of God to have arrived? Living lives of reconciliation in marriages, in race relations, in gender relations, in socioeconomic relations? Are we actually supposed to be doing something about this today? Well, if you've been here long, you know that that's what we're about here at Woodland Hills. We are about two kinds of reconciliation. The one is all about the horizontal relationships I just listed between people groups, denominations. And the other is to reconcile people with God. And you know what? It's hard to do that without doing the first one. The vision of the New Testament is that people would look at the body of Christ and say, I cannot believe that's going on. I better get involved in that kingdom. And this is part of what it means for the kingdom to come that we begin to manifest it in our day-to-day -day lives. We begin to work together with people who look different from us so that people say, I would also like to be reconciled to others. And of course, I want to be part of a God who has a kingdom that looks like this. 
This is the task of the church. And perhaps it is the case that there's so much brokenness because too often many of us are sitting around waiting for the kingdom to show up and solve the problems. When Jesus very clearly asked us to be reconcilers for him, to be ambassadors for his kingdom today. And so this is moment four today and tomorrow. This reconciliation that needs to happen between people and God and between people and each other is our responsibility. This is what it means to be the body of Christ because you see, deciding to follow Jesus is not the end of something. It's the beginning of something. When you make a decision to get on this kingdom bandwagon, it's moving. We're supposed to be going somewhere, following Jesus in this radical way that points people to the kingdom. So it's not the case like it was in the church that I was raised in where you ask Jesus into your heart and then you sit around waiting for him to come back. See, because that's kind of an anemic, sad, and pathetic way to follow Jesus. Whereas the vision that was cast for us is one where we follow Jesus and advance his kingdom and people look and say, I gotta get on that wagon. This is what the church of Jesus Christ is, but how difficult for us to ever realize this when there's a bazillion different churches. That's a technical term, bazillion. Very high number. Right now, I think people can look at the church and looking at the statistics, statistics and say, I don't see anything different there. I see a divorce rate that's worse. And we've all had people say, you guys can't even agree among yourselves. There's 10,000 denominations. So the hope for us today is that we can look at the person of Jesus and as a body right here in St. Paul, Woodland Hills, we can say, really, really, we're gonna advance the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness until all have reached fullness in Christ. And fullness of Christ is about our horizontal relationships and our vertical relationship with God. This is our task and Jesus showed us much about how we can accomplish it. The first thing, there's three things I'm gonna give you as kind of practical things to think about or act on. And the first one is to realize that our individual reconciliation with God is the first step of reconciliation that many of us need to take. You may be here and have not decided to jump on the kingdom bandwagon yet. And so for you, you need to pursue that and say, who is this God and what does it mean to follow him and accept what Jesus did for me on the cross? But for many of you like me, you've been following Jesus for quite a while to greater or lesser degrees of success. And maybe today there's another moment of reconciliation where you say, I'm back. And you know that Jesus welcomes you with open arms. And maybe some of this is about time spent with him, something he's asked you to obey in, spiritual practices. There's, many, there's not one way to do this. It's just like a human relationship. Many, many creative ways to be reconciled to God and deepen your relationship with him. And the second step that goes with the first is to realize that we're first called to reconcile our already existing relationships. And this really goes with the first step of reconciling with God. I don't know, many of you may have taken a class with Lyle Larson, one of our overseers, and he tells a story about his two daughters, Ashley and Brittany, when they were little. Brittany's the older one, and Lyle was sitting in his lazy boy, with a remote control. Probably some of you can picture that. Picture that. And uh, Brittany went over and knocked Ashley down and took her dolly. And then went running over to Lyle and hopped on Lyle's lap. And Lyle was kind of repulsed and just, you know, knocked her on the floor. Because the feeling was, wait a minute, you go give that dolly back. 
and be reconciled and then come jump on my lap. And Lyle pointed out, and I've always been overwhelmed by the profundity of that story because I think oftentimes what happens is I go be grouchy to my husband and then I go be nasty to Paul and then I go, um, you know, be not a reconciler and then I try to go and jump in God's lap. And he's like, eh. And of course he says, I love you, Sandra. How about if you go and be reconciled to Dave before you come jump in my lap? And maybe and Paul. Paul. Okay, Paul. If you go to leave your gift at the altar and you realize someone has something against you, first go and be reconciled and then come to me. So you, the part of being reconciled with God and reconciled with one another goes together. And a lot of times I think we have this whole messy wad of relationships and we kind of say, this is not working. And we move to Arizona and say, let's just start all over. And I think what God's saying is, go back to the cold weather, work on the relationships, as far as it depends on you. Now we all know we can't control the other person. But as far as it depends on me, I will be a reconciler. I will forgive. I will repent. So first, be reconciled with God. Parallel, be reconciled with the people you're already in relationship with, as far as it depends on you. And then third is step outside your comfort zone and be reconciled with people who are different from you. When we get to heaven, there's going to be Baptists and Lutherans and Methodists and Catholics. There's going to be black people and white people. There's going to be Latinos. There's going to be all different people who look differently. There's even going to be men and women. Not even separate sections. <laughs> and so, since we are called today to advance that kingdom, our churches should look like that. This is what we're pursuing. We're trying to look like heaven on earth, right? Amen. So we can't all look the same because in heaven there's lots and lots and lots of diversity. Heaven is the most diverse place. And so in this lifetime, we need to reach across those barriers, whether it's gender or race or denomination. Reach across and shake the hand. And for some of us, this is uncomfortable. Now I want to fix all this at once. Since now we've established that we were great at the beginning, we had the fall, Jesus came to fix it, then I say, okay, today is the day, right? But we need to be a little bit realistic and realize that really, it's one life at a time. Jesus didn't go and have 60,000 disciples when he died. He had 12, really 11. And so what Jesus asks us to do is in our context, be reconciled to God, be reconciled with our relationships, reach across the divide. I live in one of the most diverse neighborhoods with all different races and languages and nationalities. And I want to have a big party and get everybody working together and get a story in Time Magazine, like tomorrow. But what God has been challenging Dave and I is how about if you just love your Hmong neighbors next door? One step. And I think if we took the thousands of people involved at Woodland Hills and each of us took one or two steps and reached across a divide once or twice each week, we would begin to see the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven in a way that Jesus lived and died for. So I can't leave you with a radical plan that we'll have it all fixed tomorrow. But I can tell you that the kingdom will be ushered in one decision to love God at a time. And one decision to love your neighbor at a time. 
and one decision to step out of your comfort zone at a time and one decision to look into the eyes of someone who's had a radically different life at a time and one decision to love your enemy at a time. That's the vision. That's what Jesus lived and died for. Today is moment four. Let's pray. God, it would be easy for us to be overwhelmed by the task and maybe cynical even. But we need to lean into you and understand that it's only in your strength that we can do this. That really we can't tear down walls and we can't span the great divide apart from you and the strength and the love that you offer. So I just pray for each of us here that you would love people through us this week. That each of us here would decide to be reconcilers. And some of us here need to be reconciled to you. So Father, relentlessly pursue us. Call out to us, where are you? Draw us to you. And some of us need to reconcile our currently existing relationships, and that can be overwhelming. But we need to do that through your power as well. So empower us. We thank you that you love us through it and don't shame us through it. That you walk with us in difficult conversations. But as far as it depends on us, Father, help us to walk in your power of reconciliation. And then, Father, I pray that Woodland Hills would be a place that looks like heaven, where your kingdom comes here, as it does in heaven, where we appreciate the incredible diversity that you've created, where we pursue relationships across the divide. Give each of us that vision, Father. Let it come from you and not from me. And we pray these things in the name of the great reconciler, Jesus Christ. Amen.